Good evening. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. My name is Julian Hode. And I'm Georgie Hollis. I'm taking over Mike's place tonight because he's not here. Yeah, where is Mike? We looked everywhere, didn't we? Could you, could you find him anywhere? I just I, I looked under the sofa. Uh, yeah. In the spare room. Yeah. I, I looked in the garden. It was a little tree house at the back. He's not there. He, he sometimes goes and, and hides up there and he's not there. Try the dustbin. Ah, in case there's any half-empty bottles of gin. Maybe. It's an idea, isn't it? Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Anyway, look, we, we've got to get on because, you know, time is short. But we have, we have a, a guest tonight, don't we, Georgie? We do, we do. A mystery guest. Now, his name, I've, I've got here, his name is, um, is Michale's Bramptonopolis. Foreign. He's uh, he's, uh, he's on, on mainland Greece and uh, he's going to join us and chat about um, uh, the Asclepian and he's going to chat about the Corinth Canal and he's going to chat about uh, the the Mycenaean ruins that are apparently near his uh, near his home. So should we should we call on um, uh, Michaelis Brantonopoulos? Absolutely. Here we go. You've got the tech. Oh, Michaelis. Oh, man of mystery. Calispera, Michaelis. Te canate? Si, si. Surely you mean colour. Polycolour. Anyway, good to see you, Michaelis. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. I didn't see that much of you, but yes, a man of mystery, indeed. Yes, the international man is—is is he Michaelis Brantonopoulos, or is he perhaps someone else? Are we thinking he may be someone that we know? Oh, hold on, I—I recognise the hat. What, Michaelis Brantonopoulos? It's—we can't get rid of him. It's Mike Brampton, isn't it? Damn it! Oh. I mean, fantastic. Oh. What a great disguise, oh. mate. Yeah, oh, just, it had to go in, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder who it was. I thought yeah. it was Van. Yeah. It was Van Morrison. God, we almost no. missed you. Yeah. Hello, Georgie. How are you? Mike, great to see you. <laughs> see, I'm, I'm hosting tonight with, with Georgie, and I thought, this is great. I, I, get, I get Georgie to myself for an evening, and no, <laughs> no Mike to get in the way, and here you are. It's good to see you. Don't get me wrong. It's good to see you. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry to let you down, mate. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, Are you anywhere nice, Mike? Mike? Me, at the moment. moment Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm in a lovely place at the moment. Um, And this has actually been recorded in front of a live studio audience. Is it? From my end. Because I'm I'm staying staying with friends in Greece. Now, whereabouts in Greece? Oh, you would ask me that, wouldn't you? Just, you'd probably know this place as Argos. I've, I've been looking for Jason today. They've just they recently have. stopped producing their catalogue, haven't they? But, yeah, they have. And they, mm. they don't open on a Sunday round here either. No. no. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm in the land of um, Napfion in the Peloponnese. Do they have a sleep uh, in the afternoon? <laughs> well, they all did, but I was too busy drinking Uzo at the time. Got, we've got live audience here as well. And am I allowed to give the live audience instructions? Yes, yes, please do. Oh, Not wow. that I'm a bossy wife or anything. 
Nothing. <laughs> Richard, Sorry. get me a gin and tonic. But Richard, get me a gin and tonic. No, poor Richard's been busy all day. He's been, what have you been doing all day? <laughs> Cutting sedge. Oh, Cutting right. sedge. I was just going to give Richard the good news that he's going to have to cook our supper tonight. Excellent. Um, if that's what are you okay. Having? Richard, what are we having for supper? Pasta. Mmm. Very nice. Pasta with tomato. What about pasta with mushrooms, maybe? Could do, but we've had mushrooms every night of the week this week. So um, you've been foraging again, have you? Um, we've been foraging non-stop this week. It's, it's, everything has just gone berserk. It's almost what, like... What have you got? I, I haven't had a chance to go out yet this week, but you have, and I've seen some pictures of, of uh, your foraging. Yeah, sorry what? to shamelessly bring in the, the foraging. So you Quite hunt different. mushrooms yes. on a horse? Absolutely, yes. How the other half mushroom live? Hunting, mushroom hunting mystery pony. How do you reach down for them? Or did, did your horse sort of bow its head down? No, I, I get off. I get off when we get to the woods. He knows it's... And then I put my stirrups up. It's very important to put your stirrups up. Because oh, yeah. If he, is, if he ran off, you see, and you find a horse that's run off and the stirrups are down, you know someone fell off. But if the stirrups are up, you know that they didn't fall off. They meant to get off. Ah, right. Yeah. I so see. I, you. I, put his, I put his stirrups up and then um, what I do is, um, yeah, we just lead him around and he's, he loves snuffling around and fun. Yeah. And, and this is this is very important for anyone watching this. Uh, sorry, uh, Georgie just showed a, a picture of a book called Roger Phillips Mushrooms. Uh, Mushrooms and other fungi of Great Britain and Europe. And if you do want to go foraging, then I'd strongly recommend you join a foraging group or, or get instruction. You can forage if you get a good book on, uh, on, on fungi and on foraging generally. However, there are lots of lookalikes. So there are lots and lots of fungi that have poisonous cousins. So um, many books that the, are lookalikes as well. Absolutely. They're not, so they're not unless, you, unless you know a little bit about the descriptive terms and you're able to tell the difference between decasate gills and recurrent gills and adnexate gills and porous fungi, bracket fungi, unless you know those differences, you could end up in, in, in real straits, real dire straits. The, um, the author of that fantastic book, The Horse Whisperer, Nicholas Evans, in 2005, I think, cooked a, a meal for his family. Uh, he'd foraged what he thought were seps. He remembered eating them as a kid. Uh, and he, he fed his, his family these mushrooms. And unfortunately, they, they were all taken quite, quite poorly. Fortunately, no one died. But one of them had to have uh, a renal transplant. Another one is still you know, 10 years on having um, uh, um, dialysis frequently. Wow. Uh, and what he got was a mushroom called um, uh, uh, Speciosissimus, uh, Cortinaria Speciosissimus, which is actually uh, a gilled mushroom. So when you turn a, a mushroom from the shop over, you see these radiating lines, which are called gills. Now, Boletus, uh, Seps, Porcini is another name for it, or Penny Buns, have a uh, little sort of sponge on the underneath. So they, they're called poured uh, uh, mushrooms or poured fungi, or, or, or Boletus is another name, Lachinia is another genus. But they have these little spots or pores on the underneath, not gills. And so it, it was a, a bit of an error 
not not his own fault. You know, he, he, he thought he remembered the right ones. It's an honest mistake, but it is very easy to make mistakes. It, it could be a lot. very confusing. There's an awful lot of beliefs and there's an yeah. awful lot of rules that you need to follow. And they don't all look like they do in the book either. So the Phillips book, this, even I, and I actually, funnily enough, the lady who um, edited a lot of the photographs and collect, collated all the photographs lives in her village. I met her recently. Um, oh, yes. She worked on the book, um, and it's very much a case of what they had at the time. And if, if the image isn't quite right, there's some here that have, I'm going to use a rude word, but there's some, there's a picture of a mushroom here that's got a nipple on the top. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. normally have a nipple on the top. Mm. But it, mm. If you pick the mushroom, you look at it up in the book and you just think, it doesn't look quite right. Um, and, and you'd incorrectly um, ascribe it as a member of the Umbellifera family or Umbelliferous family, because yeah. it looks like an umbrella with a little nipple on the top. Well, I'm desperate to find a um, chanterelle. Oh, one of these. One of these, you mean? No. Yeah. <laughs> you trumped me. You top trumped me. Damn you. <laughs> Damn you. He has a very nice it was too. He doesn't have as big a nose as your uh, fungi hunter, does he? No, I thought he was going to say it's mine. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't, I've, I'd love to find a truffle as well but i know that's, me too. That's gonna be, me too. That's gonna be I, I, I think you need to take a pig into the woods to find a triple georgie i think we need oh, to be in a slightly different environment they yeah, need to I, be yeah. in i heard i heard a story i heard a story once of how truffles were named truffles and it could be wrong but it's a great story and it's in the days you know 1700s where the the french aristos were still uh, uh de rigueur um in other words when they still had their heads and they they would go truffle hunting and they'd take um, their, their little um, French poodles with them, the bichon frises, uh, and the, the peasants would go on ahead with the pigs who do the actual truffle hunting. And uh, when they when the pigs discovered a truffle, they, they'd pull the pigs away, call the aristos forward who go along and pretend the little... Uh, <laughs> little cushion dogs had found these these things and and they'd say you know i, I found and they became known as truffles or truffles hence truffles little pines so i don't know whether it's true or not but uh, it's a great story yeah i remember yeah. that when i find a chocolate in the fridge yeah, but and, you, and, that, and that then segues on to, to if you live in france you can take mushrooms to any french pharmacy and they'll identify them for me. It's the same as in Italy. They'll identify them. I think they must, by law, uh, identify the mushrooms for you. Okay. However, about six to eight people die in France and Italy each year because the pharmacies incorrectly identify them. So again, a warning for people, mushroom hunting, foraging of any sort can be fantastic, very rewarding and give you a wonderful meal. But you do have to be very, very careful. And Jules' rules is, if in doubt, leave it out. Yeah. 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 And and I and I think um sometimes the ones that people think are safe are the white ones. Um mm. the field mushrooms. And actually yeah. they'll consider anything that's white to be like a field mushroom that that's safe. And actually they are the most dangerous. So they they, uh, they are. And I've got a picture, I think, somewhere of um of of a manator uh there we go. Destroying angel. Is it a destroying angel? That's a destroying a angel. Cat? That's yeah. right. Um, and destroying <laughs> angels is awful. It's, it's got to be one of the worst ways to die because yeah. it's biphasic. So you, you, 
you eat this mushroom and apparently it tastes delicious. People have eaten it and said, mm, really nice. And about five to eight hours later, you start getting uh, muscle cramps and then you start, that's it. That's it. So look, look for the little um, cup on the bottom. The, the, uh, the, um, the Volvo. 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 <laughs> Volvo, yeah. It comes Volvo. out of an egg, effectively. Absolutely. So if it comes out of, of, of a little cup, then it is an emeritor. And other than Caesar's uh, mushroom, which, which is a, a manator, uh, and a, a couple of others, they contain the most poisonous mushroom species. Um, but so people who have eaten destroying angels feel really ill for a few hours and they get sent to hospital and the hospital um, stomach pumps and a six month drip and things. And they start to feel better after 12 to 18 hours. And then they have irreversible liver and kidney failure and die. There's nothing you can do, unfortunately. Ganoderm is a, a bracket fungus that's not edible, but is used as an ameliorative in, uh, in cancer therapy. It's used as, uh, as something to, uh, to, to ablate or reduce the toxic effects of certain chemotherapeutics. Good Lord. Um, I know I know the um, there's certainly the mushrooms. Oh God, is it the enoki mushrooms? Yes, that yeah. are used for antioxidants that are really tumor reducing mm. potentially. So there's massive research into the use of mushrooms for tumor um, tumor potential in tumor. Right. And, and the interesting thing is that, that there's there must be something more than the antioxidant effect because they've used. Um, uh, more potent antioxidants as anti-tumor agents and found that the uh, that life expectancy reduces with those patients. The reason being that for apoptosis or, or killing of the, of the cancer cells, you need oxidation. So most lysosomal enzymes are oxidants. And if you, if you use uh, things that enhance vitamin E and other natural antioxidants, then you remove the body's innate ability to, to Get rid of the cancer itself. So, although initially, uh, not um, those mushrooms were, were used because it was found they had an antioxidant effect, they must also have a direct anti-tumor effect. Interesting, because that's um, the same argument with curcumin and all of those other things. Just yes, that everyone sort of. I know. I only know it from the wound care side of things, whereas a lot of the research that goes on with apoptosis and tumour formation mm. and those things that are failing, which is the, um, the normal cascade of tissue growth and everything else, um, a lot of the research that's done in tumours tends to um, sort of filter down into wound management. So mm. looking at sort of um, normal cellular function in healing um, is very closely associated with tumour formation. So um, you find that this curcumin and turmeric and all these other things, they go into wound management if they've been uh, using for tumour. Absolutely. absolutely. And a friend of mine did his PhD on um, on the effects, uh, the, the anti-inflammatory effects on, on uh, of, of curcumin, of, of turmeric. Uh, and he looked at, um, at various stages of the inflammatory pathways. Um, the non-cox pathways so it's found that um that turmeric actually augments the non-cox anti-inflammatory pathways so in incredible stuff if you get it in the bloodstream which is um i i wrote a very short piece for um um i think it was a, a 
uh, one of the journals, I think I had like 300 words to explain curcumin and turmeric. And I said, um, you have to get it in the bloodstream and it's not soluble in water. So it has to, you have to put it in coconut oil in order for the curcumin to be available in the bloodstream. And then you have to take black pepper to have pepperine, which apparently is <laughs> helps it to be more bioavailable. It stops the, the liver from um, <laughs> uh, getting rid of it. Except my, um, unfortunately, my spell check changed pepperine to pepperoni. And I hadn't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so when I submitted my little article, it said you've got to eat it with pepperoni. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> pepperoni, cumin, Thai curry in order to have yeah. the same effects. And you boil that in a wok for uh, 30 minutes, um, adding in spices and extra herbs as you go. And just chuck them in just to <laughs> be sure, you know, you never know. You've, been, you've actually been quite busy on the Veterinary Wound Library recently, haven't you, Georgie? Oh, yes, I have. No, we have. You have. I, I'm, yeah. I'm seeing references coming up all over the place recently. We're we're um we're on the ball now. I think <laughs> no, it, it's all it's all doing well. So good. Three months. We're doing a three months rolling um rolling agenda for online content, and I think we're going to stick with two webinars and a Q and A, um, and just keep that rolling. And that's working really nicely at the minute. So so you you're developing the whole veterinary room library to make it easier and more accessible. Yeah, definitely, and um. Yeah, doing doing a lot more that's um, sort of focused at what people need um, rather than just just the telemedicine. It's very much been the telemedicine up to date, but now we've got a bit more time to spend just making the content, getting the content in there, and working with some really mm. nice people. So it's all very it's all good again. And I think Brilliant. I think we spent a lot. Um, I'm just hesitating, thinking should I say, but um, worked really far too hard on it over the last eight years or so and now kind of stepping back and just trying to have a bit more quality of life and actually stuff's come better since hmm. I've had a lot a bit more headspace and a bit more time to just it's really interesting so um, I'm trying Good. to do a bit more so all this foraging and stuff actually it turns out um, I'm a reflector so when you do all these um, training things and you work out um, what sort of learner you are Actually, it's my downtime that helps me soak stuff in and think. Right. Hmm. Um, so it's really interesting that actually things are better when I have more time out. But I've always thought I felt bad for going out and doing stuff and actually didn't realise what good it was doing me. But the downtime that, is time that actually you, you It's all of mindfulness stuff. But, you know, actually I'm far more effective if I'm working half a day than a full day, which is very so, strange. So so actually, trotting through the local forests like landed gentry, hunting for truffles with your horse is actually better for all of the vets that are involved in the veterinary wound library. It's terrible, yes, but it is. But I, I, you know, I went out there this evening and then and um, this afternoon and actually gelled a whole load of ideas about what we're going to do for the next lot of webinars, and mm -hmm. it's really interesting. And you just think. Ooh stop feeling guilty for just having a bit of downtime because actually your head needs it yeah, there's no need to feel guilty mike and i always make a joke of um, a reflection with cpd um <laughs> purely because actually what we don't like more than anything else is being 
patronized and told what we need to do to learn. Yeah. Um, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. So you can do all the CPD you want. That's fine. You can read a book. Have you learned from it? Who knows? Who knows? Actually, whatever drives your cognitive process to process information and, and, uh, and learn from it, it is your method. And, and that's, that may happen for some people in a lecture. It may happen online. It may happen by reading a book. But for the majority of people, I think what really happens is uh, there's this uh, post-learning process, filtration, where your subconscious filters the information through and applies it to, to other uh, procedures, other rationales, other, other uh, doctrines. And, and, and you then think, hang on, this, this thing I learned that there was you know, a bit of standalone CPD Actually, that, that would be relevant if I did this instead, wouldn't it? As well. So, you know, reflection isn't something that you can put into a timed CPD. You, you can't uh, say, okay, I spent 30 seconds reflection there, it worked. Reflection is something we do every single second of every single day when we're not thinking directly about something else. I, th I think you're, you're absolutely right there. And, and some, of the, some of the athletes I've worked with in the recent past, the, the subconscious or in, enhancing the power of the subconscious has been the whole drive to to reaching peak performance at, at that particular time. And and like you, Georgie, I mean, obviously your time spent out in the woods, and I, I can imagine that you you're just getting ideas. Just you you're doing one thing. You're looking for for fungi or mushrooms or riding your horse, and then. But my brain relaxes. Everything relaxes, and all of a sudden, you're you're not under pressure anymore. And it's it's like being a cornered cat or a cornered. You know, I'm sat in front of the computer all day, and I'm looking at um, what I need to do, and I'm thinking, must do this, must do this, must do this. And actually, I get less effective as the day goes mm. on. Yeah. An yep. hour out, I'm almost twice as effective when I've come back. Than I would yeah. have been. So that hour out is actually free. Really? <laughs> yeah. actually, so, actually, when I come back, I'm a bit refreshed. Um, I've got I've clarified some of the thoughts, and you kind of prioritise what's important and think, why am yeah. I bashing my head against the wall doing that thing when actually mm -hmm. there's nothing in it for anybody really, apart yeah. from it might be vanity or something else, and you just think, do I need to be doing that? Probably not. Yeah. Um, and then um, yeah. yeah, so you just just doing what's doing what needs to be done and not beating yourself up quite so much is quite quite nice I think if anything COVID has helped massively on that and I don't I don't I don't dare really put online how many people feel they've benefited from COVID but I do think a few people may feel that actually they've had time to sit back and think about what is important there's been some real rubbish you know um, people who've had to be laid off work people who've had you know um financially things very different but yeah. actually when it comes down to what's important i think a lot of people have been able to have a reality check and hopefully yeah. that's going to be good for everyone it, it, it's the same with any unnatural disaster um and I, I say that because not because i think that the coronavirus is unnatural but the way that we've responded to it has been necessarily an unnatural reaction yeah I mean, in nature, you don't close down businesses and put people on furlough and things like that. That's a, 
an artificial construct to get through mm-hmm. something. Um, but it's the same with you know with wars, uh, with, with with conflict of any sort, with um, uh, with a pandemic. We've had to think outside the box. We've had to do, been forced to do things differently. And it's no surprise that actually most of the innovations over the past 150 years have come about during wartime. Mm-hmm. I was going to do a tenuous link into wound management, but everything that has come into everything yep. that evolved that we use now with wound management, trauma management. Um, when it comes down to warfare, there was a, there's one of the surgeons that we know in human healthcare. He's a fantastic guy, um, Professor Steve Jeffries. He's done some work with us before. Yeah. Yes. Brilliant guy, brilliant guy. um, You know, it's a case of the evolution of what he does has come out of the fact that, believe it or not, the issue they they have is not closing wounds, it's blood loss at the scene of injury. Mm. So the patients bleed out. So what's happened is there's been a lot of evolution in products that are used, and funnily enough, this is going to come back to mushrooms, isn't it? Um, Yes. And chitin and um, in mushrooms. Um, So the um, puffball is a hemostat. So you've got chitin and all sorts of things in Mm. there. And what they've realized is that this um, chitin is a massive hemostat, which can stop bleeding within three minutes Mm. in the femoral artery. And you find that these people who are at the scene of the injury, who are bleeding out, their mate can put this product in that wound and stop the bleeding within three minutes. But it's interesting, this isn't new. This isn't new. Do, do you remember um, what's his name? Otzi. Was it Otzi? I'll, I'll look it up. The the, the, uh, the Ice Man. The Ice Man. Yes. Now, in his pack, they discovered, among everything else, a bracket fungus called strop fungus. Really? Yeah. And strop fungus, uh, they, they thought at the time was probably useful because, you know, as a strop, you can use it to sharpen a blade. It, yeah. It's it's like leather. And you can use yes. it. Now, if you dry it out, you can use it as tinder. But one of the things, yes, Mike, you're timing out. Uh, just to just just to fill people in, Otzi was a uh, a character. Question whether he was a chef, sheep herder, or or a trader, who was discovered when a glacier in the high Alps melted, and what we were gifted was an almost perfectly preserved corpse in his clothes um, and we've been able to analyse exactly what he was up to. I can't remember I can't remember when he was discovered, Julian, or, or how old it's estimated. Uh, I, I think it was the late 1990s, wasn't it? Was he crossing from Austria to Italy? Or? Yeah, he, he was. was. And, and yeah. If, yeah. If I, if, I'm probably going to get the facts wrong here, but I, I think when he was discovered, uh, they... they Thought he was a, a recent murder, yeah. And so, quick as a flash, they kicked him across the uh, the border to allow the German police to investigate. And and then when they found out that it was about three thousand years old, they they, they pushed him back across the border, and it was kudos. Yeah. So you had this strong fungus. Now, one of, one of the things that, that I'd read about a few years back. Um, the, the, the strop fungus was possibly used for in the in the Middle Ages was as a plaster, and you can cut the um, uh, the, the dorsal surface off and slice it, and the the skin uh, of, of the um, uh, of the fungus will actually stick to your skin. Are we talking about a birch polypore? 
Yes, absolutely. Oh, maybe. I tried to find one today. <laughs> yeah. I've got a, I'm trying to find, I've got a picture of, of, of my foot with a huge blister on when I was doing some, some climbing ones. And I, and I found a birch polypore, cut a, a square off and used it as a blister plaster. And it was perfect. And so the feeling was that Odyssey was carrying it, not as a, as a knife sharpener, but in case he had any wounds. Oh, a Band-Aid. And so, you know, from, from, from a couple of thousand years ago, there were people using these things and we're, we're, and we're rediscovering them. We, we've lost a lot of that, that. Apparently he also had sphagnum moss and he had a bandage on his hand with sphagnum moss in it. And they found that sphagnum moss is um, as absor- more absorbent than a lot of the alginates that we've got. And yes. it contained a high iodine content, which is antimicrobial. So, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, we haven't well, got be, very far. Yeah, it used to be used as a, as a, a you know, a panty liner. So, uh, well, sphagmos is brilliant stuff. Sphagmos absorbs up something like ten or twelve times its it, its own weight volume in in fluid. Yeah, so, a million one million. Now this sounds ridiculous now because I'm I'm confused, but I believe this, one million tons of it was used. This is a, this is a, this is a show called Veterinary Ramblings, Georgie. So I wouldn't be really worried about whether it sounds. Yeah. Do, do carry on. I got this quote in one of my talks about sphagnum moss being used in World War One and Two, and that over a million, a massive, massive amount was used mm. for um, bandaging and using absorbent. It was um, sterilized with phenol at the time, which probably didn't need to be done because that wouldn't be very nice. But uh, I've just suddenly dawned on me how enormous an amount one million tons would be, but I, I just can't. I, that must have um, damaged <laughs> the uh, entire globe's. <laughs> population of um sphagnum moss but i, I would worry and julie about that georgie i think in in these, in these current times where we talk about millions and billions and billions and trillions and they're just so big numbers that nobody can actually get their head around it no if so i haven't got if i haven't got on my fingers we're stuffed we, we going back so so moving moving from sphagnum back to Back to fungi. There's a, a very close connection there. Have you heard of King Alfred's cakes? No, fungus. Uh, I think yeah, Daldinia concentrica, um, otherwise called cramp balls, and that you find them. They're little sort of um, chestnut-like um, excrescences stuck onto dying silver birch. Oh, fruit. I know what you yeah. mean. I know they look like charcoal. They look like charcoal. Yeah. Now they they will hold a smolder. They're the ones. They're the ones. So crampals, otherwise called King Alfred's cakes, because of course they look like burnt cakes. Now, they, so they, they'll hold. They'll hold a smaller. You can see the um, lines in there where it looks like it looks like charcoal. There's, a, there's another, oh, another, another that's picture that's there. The picture that you're showing me there, Georgie. I mean, the, the the one on the top right looks like a hot cross bun, which I'm sure some people will recognise. But the one on the left definitely looks like a pig's testicle. Bottom <laughs> left. And George is showing up, or, or a brain and brain stem. George is holding up a lovely picture there of, um, of camp balls. Yeah, and, that, and that's, not, that's not the best picture. So normally no. they, they will look almost like a burnt conker. But, but the thing, if you, if you cut them in half, 
and stick them over a flame, then they will glow, they'll smolder. Right. And you can you can then wrap them in sphagnum moss and cover them in something like a rhubarb leaf or, or a butter burr leaf and stick them in your backpack. And you can walk all day. And when you get to a campsite late at night, you unwrap it all. The sphagnum moss doesn't burn. But the the King Alfred's cake will, will hold the smolder. And so you just you blow on it and you can reignite a fire. And wow. that was thought to be one of the ways that fire was transported. Rather than having to set up a new fire every night, you, you carry this, this smouldering uh, uh, cramp ball. And that, that, was me, that was me speaking from the home of the original Olympics, thinking that you carried it on a long stick. <laughs> Have you had um, Heros yet? No, not yet. Heros, it's spelled gyros. On the Gyros. 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 But it's Heros. So they're the, the, the pita breads filled with sliced uh, chicken or, or lamb. And they usually put chips and onions and chili sauce and things in as well. So it's a meal in a meal in a pita. So is, is this like a is this like a, a doner kebab would be known like, in in Turkey? Or, yeah, ab- or absolutely. But it's called it's called Hiros in, in, in Greek. And right. um, I, I I managed, I was eating one a few years back and, uh, and I was bothered by wasps. And so I quickly sort of crushed one with my fresh heroes and was able to say in truth that the wasp died a hero's death. A hero's death. Died a hero. Hey, look, look what I have. Look what I have here. Joke died a heros death. To be honest with you. So, Mike, do you have any bats flying around the? Yeah, they are. We've actually just switched the lights on outside. It's, it's pitch dark, but uh, there are a lot of bats flying around outside, catching all the mosquitoes. That's what um, I love about very love bats. Love bats. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm, I'm over here for a few days. Hmm. But uh, one of the highlights for me is going to be tracking down Agamemnon's tomb. Wow, oh, amazing. Yes, yes. I went there, the beehive tomb. The beehive tomb, which mm. for, for people who haven't or aren't interested in Googling this, um, the beehive tomb accredited to Agamemnon, because there is actually very little evidence to say that Agamemnon was actually buried there. Doesn't have a headstone or anything. There's no Agamemnon was here, is there? No, no, there's nothing like that. But it's actually... Um, an underground chamber that has been made in the shape of a beehive. And then, I don't, I don't know, do you know any more about this, Julian? Because has that gradually become covered by, by soil, etc., or was it actually built as an underground tomb? As in, no, I, the tomb was built and then filled in afterwards? I, I believe... I'm going to go and check this later. I, I, I'll give you an update next week, but I believe it was built as, uh, as a beehive a superstructure. So yeah. like, like one of the pyramids in Egypt, only yeah. in a beehive structure rather mm. than a... a, a I, I think it was subsequently covered. But because of the inherent uh, strength of a beehive yeah. shape, uh, it, it, uh, it survived. There's a lot of history there. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're just comparing the uh, the beehive tomb of Agamemnon, which is, I'm hoping, only about half an hour up the road from where I am at the moment, um, to the pyramids in Egypt, except they use a different shape. 
So I, I don't know if there's is there anything. Yeah, I, I don't know whether there's a, a comparison in nature at all, you know, or why they've called it a beehive. Or oh, uh, be, because in the in the Middle Ages uh, and, and the the early apicultural societies, they used these wicker baskets to to keep bees in, and so they were sort of bell shaped. All right, it was the Egyptians that first tamed bees. It was. Yeah. Domestic, Brian. You've got to, you've got to talk to your bees. You've got to tell your bees your problems, haven't you? Have you? I used to, I used to keep bees. I'm afraid, <laughs> but we used to, have to go down, and we were told quite, quite um, strictly by, by some, uh, some bee keepers, you, you must tell them all your family problems. Quite so you, now we didn't for one year. We thought let's not, and see what happens. And actually. On an N equals one experimental base, there was no difference in honey production, and the bees were as were as happy. I'd like to see more people do research faking. on that. They could have been faking it. Do you, they maybe been. they were hanging around your windows and listening. They knew anyway. They did. They did. Georgie, 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 have you been doing any more drawing recently? Talking <laughs> colours. I have a bit, but not. Um, I've actually been dyeing wool instead, and I had my first experiment. I'm just trying to find where I put it. Georgie's it's disappeared again. I have to find some wool. So um, <laughs> this was my first first attempt at dyeing wool, which is in a yeah, it's kind of slightly pinky purpley, but you can't it, tell. It is. So what have you used to dye it? So you're holding up there a whole. What what, what do you call that? Is that a sheaf or? No, um, I would guess you call it a bat when I've done it like that, when I've okay. fluffed it a bit. But um, it's a, a massive failure because I'm not very good at reading instructions. <laughs> <laughs> what did you use to dye them? Damsons, actually. But is this, is this not where you're supposed to stamp the wall down? Well... In, I, um, urine and stuff oh, like that. No, there's loads of things. Urine's good, but um, there's all sorts of different things that you can use. But funnily enough, there is a tenuous link into mushrooms because there's a dyer's mushroom as well. Yeah, there's a dyer's mushroom and it, it makes a lovely blackish brown. Really? Um, I've got to find out what that is. Why am I surprised that a mushroom would make a blackish brown colour? <laughs> oh, now you'd say that. You say that. But no. there are hundreds of colours. There's one that gives a sort of brownish black. Oh, right. Okay. Georgie's disappeared again. And she's back again. Yes, I'm just going to show you my book about wild colour. Wild colour. So, did, did, you, did you ever try that trick with that bolete you had the other day of cutting in half and seeing it turn blue? No, I didn't. Oh. And I found it in the forest a day later and somebody had broken it down. Pattern blue. Yeah. Now, there, there are some that do that, that, that are edible, and some that do that are, that are believed to be toxic. And, and there, thereby lies the uncertainty. So Belita Saturnoides, or Satan's Bolete, is, is thought to be poisonous. But other people, other, other, other uh, authors have, have written that actually it's edible if you boil it. And, and no one really knows. Now... We might have eaten one once by accident. I think yeah, I, I think I might have, have tried done. one by accident. Yeah, I think But are you are you saying, Georgie, that you might have eaten one by accident once? I tend to feed them to Richard first. 
Okay. Oh my God! Look what you can dye your wool with. Pomegranate. Pomegranate. Fantastic. Now I've got a thing. I, you were teasing me about the colour that it comes out. So if your mushroom's mm. brown, it comes out brown. Actually, whatever you dye with doesn't necessarily come out the colour that you think it will do. So right. um, if you dye with what is a red dahlia, your dye comes out green. So you're, you're telling us that you're, you're showing us a picture of a, a red dahlia. Yeah. You're, you're saying that if you use this to dye your clothes, your clothes are going to come out sort of a jade green colour. Well, it depends how you prepare it, but there's lots of different ways to prepare it. So you have to do a mordant first, which means you've got to prepare your yeah, wool to accept the colour. Yeah. A sticker, it. basically. Something to stick yeah. it. Something to stick it. And then you can put different chemicals on it in order to potentiate different colours. So iron, you can use um, copper. You can use different things. Some of them are a bit more toxic than others, but um, generally they'll use alum. To, as a mordant which is quite a gentle mordant um and then once you put the alum on you can then soak it this is this is wild color by um by jenny dean is, is it yes it's it's a book that, that that tells you how you can use naturally foraged compounds plants etc to to make uh, dyes for for materials um, i'm getting it on amazon although other distribution uh, companies are available they are but if you're sitting down in your fat ass like me not going to shops at the moment then amazon seems to work so but it's certainly an education and having not been particularly good at um chemistry i haven't blown the house up yet and um you can um you can put um alum and boil it all up and and you've, uh, the, the worry I had was that wool, people who do felting and stuff, um, they will know that if you get wool too hot, it will tend to felt and it turns mm. into a, a thing. So it says in the in here to um, sort of cook it, simmer it for an hour. And I was mm. so scared I was going to felt it that I took it off and didn't. So the colour didn't stick very well. But it's ever so slightly off purple. Actually, you know what? It wasn't taking very well. So I thought, ah. Oh. Well, fuck it, red wine dyes everything. We get a lot of amethyst deceiver where we are, Ooh. which is delicious, really nice. And I've often wondered whether we could use that as a dye. I've, I've, tried, I've used um, a bit of acetone and meths to dissolve the uh, uh, the pigments and, and used a coffee filter to, to do a bit of home chromatography. Does it come out? Separate the pigments on it, and it really comes out well. You get a lovely purple pigment, and and interesting enough, a green one too. Um, what do you see? Look, these are all the different colours you can get out of just single different single um single products, depending wow. on what acids and what um what um oh god mordants you use. Mm. So depending on the acid you use, so if you use um iron afterwards you can make the color more intense or otherwise so um fascinating stuff i haven't really George is showing us a, a, a page from this book which is essentially just like a dulux color chart doesn't it <laughs> other color charts are available <laughs> so uh, please please people don't necessarily buy crown or, or farrow and ball or something or, although please if farrow and ball want to sponsor us then do buy those 
Yeah. Otherwise, consider painting your house with stinging nettles. Actually, stinging nettles are in here. Do you want to know what colour stinging nettles go? Yeah. Oh, is it purple? <laughs> Actually, do you know what the one of the best things for colour is? Nettle. Actually, nettle's pretty pretty pastel. I thought it was blue. Oh no, yellows and greens. Oh, no, it's woad. Blue, isn't it? And and you can eat it as well. I've grown woad. I've got it in the garden. Mm. But you need the same amount of woad as you wait for weight as wool. And I put it in a bit late. Mm. So I've only got about five grams. Um, but can you can you guess which which there's a, there's something that gives you a massive amount of colours that are absolutely lovely. And I'll tell you what it is and save you. Garden that. snails. Garden snails. You could try mm. anything. Well, there's cochineal, isn't there? Gosh, absolutely, yeah. Cochineal, yeah. Um, I'm going to find the page in a minute. It's hair. Hair? Pears. Give you an absolutely lovely like... range of colours. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pear. Is that pears? Pear. Sorry, so Georgie is showing, showing us her pears now. And um, go from from oh, hold on, hold on. That sounds wrong. That sounds wrong. No, I'm sorry. Georgie isn't showing us her pears now. Georgie is showing us. Uh, you know, we, we have to cut that. Colors that you can get from pear prunus, the prunus, not the. Is it a prunus? Yeah, iris actually, communis. Communis. So can you well, prunus is cherry, and that family. Prunus is apple and cherry and. Right, but you're, you're showing us a range of colours there, Georgie, from mm. a sort of khaki colour all the way down to a purple colour, all from pear, or is it just the one? All of those colours from one plant. Amazing, wow. and that, and you'll get those different colours depending on how you boil it and the mordant you use and the, and the uh, post, um, and the process. chemical you use and the pH that you cook it uh, that you um, finish with. Incredible! Really. Wow, and this will have been done for thousands of years. Yeah. And just to think that the ancient Brits used to just cover themselves in blue woad. Yeah. Just smear it all on. And shout, Have here we bit. go, here we go, here we go. Here we go. The great part of the process. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Brits, it. But part of the process is you need ammonia to um, make the woad go dark blue. So they and we know, <laughs> we know where that comes, yeah, yeah. Bloody hell. There's, there's a wonderful they museum. Must have of <laughs> yeah. There's a wonderful museum just down the road from us called the, the Singleton Museum or the Wilden Downland. Uh, have you heard of it, Mike? Have you been there? Fabulous museum. I I partook at the Wilden Downland Museum in a celebration of the Battle of Agincourt. And we we shot a storm of arrows. And the target, wow. was, the target was set at uh, 220 feet or 220 yards. Mm. Yeah, 220 yards. So longbow was that then? Longbow. This was old English longbows. The targets were set at 220 yards and about 250 old English longbow archers lined up and launched a storm of arrows. And unlike the Battle of Agincourt, where the uh, the outnumbered English under Henry V and the Welsh archers uh, defeated an army of something like 10,000 French noblemen uh, in a battle for survival, um, 
we weren't being charged down by the French nobility, and um, there were only about 250 of us, and we did not turn the sun black. But, but to partake in that and to hear that number of arrows being loosed at one time out into the fields towards the target was quite an impressive thing to, to partake in. Gosh, what an amazing sound. And was that uh, it was filmed, was it? Sorry? It was filmed, presumably. So you could... It wasn't filmed. No. It wasn't. We, we, we're not, we weren't reenacting, so we were in our standard archery uniforms, if you like, or what we would normally shoot in. The proviso was that you were shooting an old English longbow, which is traditionally made out of the yew tree. And the yew tree has got a, a unique um, performance in that the heartwood and the sapwood, the, the heartwood, the dark heartwood, is better under compression and the sapwood is better under extension. So as you bend the bow, it enables the bow to bend and then release with a spring thereby releasing what was at the time the ballistic weapon of the day. And the Mongols, um, uh, so under, under Genghis Khan, yep. did, a, did a similar thing. Obviously, they didn't have yew trees, so they used wood and leather, didn't they? At, at exactly the same time. What, what I find interesting in history is that exactly the same time that the British longbow or the long the, the archer was the dominant force on the battlefield in Western Europe, enabling our kings to just jaunt over to France and annihilate the Frenchies, um, for which, of course, they have forgiven us. Um, at the same time, Genghis Khan was using um, horse sinew and bone on a, a, a very beautifully shaped double curved bow. So that kind of crossbow kind of... No, it wasn't really a crossbow. That was, was more of a Venetian thing. Um, it was, it, it's more of a double curved bow, but it's very short and it's incredibly powerful. And they what that meant, they, they would shoot from horseback. So the Mongolian pony was like the shock troops of the day. And um, they would use these these short bows. And the, the key to it, well, you're a horse rider, Georgie. That the key to locking onto your target with a horse bow is as the horse is galloping, there is a point where all four feet are off the ground. Mm. And the archer waits for that moment of serenity where all four feet come off the ground and everything is stable to release the arrow. And the archers that are skilled in horse riding and archery are phenomenally accurate in that. So if you can imagine facing a, a whirling dervish of pony-clad archers just charging at you in sort of Brownian motion all over the place, spitting out these lethal barbs that will puncture any armour that they had at the time. Now, obviously, the Mongols were, were, were forging across the steppes of Mongolia into China, and a lot of the armour plate that would withstand a spear or a, or a sword were, were bamboo or leather sheets. 
um, they would not stand up to an armour-pointed barb being fired at uh, several hundred miles an hour. There's fences no that do that now, on, where you can go on horseback and you run the horse along a, a, a sort of a, a guided area. Yeah. Canter along. Um, so um, it depends on your horse running in a straight line for a start. Mine tends to trip over himself, much to my disgust at yep. times. Um, but I have always, I have thought it would be good fun to give it a go. It's but I don't funny. really want to kill anything. So. Um. Well, you can you can do that. And horseback archery is actually a sport. It's mainly based in Hungary nowadays. Um, I saw a I saw a demonstration of uh, Mongolian horsemanship a few years back at um, some country show or that, and they were absolutely amazing and you're absolutely right Mike that there'd be this point during the gallop where where all four feet are off the ground and you could uh the the um the commentator would say count now this is the pace count and you can know that on four he's going to shoot but the the accuracy was incredible and they were they were doing it you know, without any effort whatsoever Apparently, and they they they'd lean off to one side on the horse. They'd be uh, at a right angle to the ground. For a go, yeah. Uh, I'm not there yet. I'm just. I'm still just finding mushrooms. Yeah, you can find mushrooms. That's that's fine. That's fair enough. I have to get off to find. (laughs) (laughs) I found these in the kitchen. (gasps) Wow, in the kitchen. I've got to ask. I've got to ask my um, my better half what they're called because I keep forgetting. Marasmia, I think they're Marasmus called. Marasmius Oriades. Uh, Marasmius Oriades. Yeah, yeah. Um, bonnets, fairy ring champignon. Yes. Mousson. And they they grow in your kitchen like that. They grow in our field in our paddock with the sheep, and apparently that's what you do. You put them on a thread with a few with a couple of acorns at the bottom and dry them and use them. Later. Yeah. Georgie, what you're holding up there look, looks almost like a necklace. Yeah. Yeah. And you could use the acorn there to, to just tie that necklace around your neck. Amazing. Can I make a confession though? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Well, let, let's do. Let's do. It ben smells rambling. horrible, doesn't it? Yeah, it smells horrible. Veterinary and ramblings. Confession time. Done. What What is your confession? I love hunting for mushrooms. I don't necessarily like eating them. All right. Well, I. Oh, we did a pasta the other night, and it was it was beautiful pasta. It was a five mushroom pasta, and yeah. um, recipe to follow. <laughs> I do have a picture of it sizzling, um, and I use some of these, and these are just not to my taste. No, I don't. It, when they're dried, they, they give quite an unpleasant smell. I find they're obviously really, really nutty, a bit too nutty. They're a bit like um, I we tried some. Oh God, what were they called? Bluets. Field oh, bluets. And um, I didn't like the taste. It was, it was too. No, I love, I love wood bluets. Yes, Mike. I, I, I have a confession. Yeah. I don't actually like all of the gins that we feature on the show. No, Mike. Seriously, don't don't tell us what you don't like because those people might be sponsoring us. So, yeah. But I know, I know which ones you mean. Over, it's finished, yeah. isn't it? Do you, I I love I love mushrooms. I absolutely love them. What's your confession, William? I have my, my confession is that there are a few mushrooms I don't like. 
and one is giant puffballs. Uh, really? He's yeah. Awesome. I don't like because they, they, they look perfect. You can slice them and as long as they're not yellow in the middle. They're, they're edible. You're fine <laughs> if you're bleeding out if they're yellow in the middle. Then yeah. they're really handy. <laughs> but and, but I, I used to have them, you know, toasted and um, have an egg on top. I, I went off them. I don't know whether I had too many or whatever, but I went off them. Guys, we <laughs> we have had we've had a magic evening. Talking about magic, it's been a magic evening because is, is this another mushroom link, Julian? No, it's, it's not. It's not. It's a link to. Oh, well, you're such a pair of fun guys. It's it's a it's a it's not much room in this, this room. We we've we've covered everything from uh, from ice men of two thousand years ago all the way through fungal identification, uh, natural dyeing of material and wool uh, coloring, all the way through to uh, to cancer therapy, and I think. Really, that deserves a special CPD certificate. Oh, so here we go. Now, I've I've written this CPD certificate phonetically, so it, it's not English, it's not Greek, but it's in Greek symbols and it's phonetic. So there's certificate uh, to demonstrate learning, and it says "evharisto," "evharisto," or "thank you." Listener, if listener, uh, veterinary ramblings, and it says Julian, Georgie, and Mike. And you can read that down there. Phonetically, it reads me and him and her. Fabulous. And there's a few pictures there. Now, if you explain the pictures, so what we got there is um, is a cuttlefish, one of uh, one of the Greek delicacies. Delicious. There's a there's a Greek villa with a little Greek cat there. There's a Greek villa with a little pool. Yeah, and that's not where I'm going. More explanation. So here's a bottle of Greek white wine and a carton of banana juice. Now, I love Greece. I love the Greeks. I love everything Greek. I'll be honest. Greek wine, little bit of an acquired taste. But if you get a bottle of Greek wine, Greek white wine, and mix it half and half with banana juice, you get a lovely cocktail that we called monkey juice when we were in Greece a few years back. And it's worth trying. So half and half banana juice, Greek white wine. Wonderful. Hey, do you know what, Julian? I'll try that tomorrow. Not. Give it a go. Give it a go. No, no Mike, don't, don't listen for a second. I think I fooled him, Georgie. Yeah. Okay, you can listen again, Mike. Okay. No. <laughs> Night all. I, I, we need to reflect on our CPD momentarily. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's nice that you say night all, but we haven't actually completely finished the show at this point. Sorry. Yeah, our, our CVS regulations are fairly clear on this, that you are required to reflect upon the CPD that you've been given. So I'd like to invite all of our audience to think back over some of the nuggets that we have provided for you this evening as CPD. And just some of them are chicken nuggets, although other fast foods are available. No, 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 it's chicken of the woods. 
Julian. Chicken of the wood. Chicken of the wood nuggets. Not chicken. Not just reflect okay. on the things that we've shared with you tonight, please. You could do it in panko breadcrumbs. Julian, are you reflecting? <laughs> please take this seriously, Julian. Yes, Julian. Oh, oh, just just reflect on our CPP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reflect. I'm, I'm doing. I'm, yeah. I, th- I think we're glitching like mad here. No, you don't have are. to pray, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to pray. <laughs> we're going to bring it to a close. Julian, tra- traditionally, you, you, you tell a joke at this time of the evening, and we round out from there. <laughs> so, well, I couldn't, really, I couldn't really come up with a clean... Greek joke. I've got a few very unclean ones, but I just thought because we're talking about foraging and, and being in the woods and things, I'd, I'd tell a little story about the bear. The bear, because there's that old question: Do bears have seps in the wood? Hang, 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 on, hang on. Is is this the one about the princess riding her horse through the, the woods? No, no. I thought of that, but I thought oh, maybe not. Because Georgie might be offended. Yeah, that's very good. So, so it's all about the bear trying to trying to poo in the woods. And this bear's oh. sitting on a, sitting on a tree stump. The who? The Pope. A bear. A bear. A brown bear. Sorry. And he's trying to poo. Trying to poo in the woods. He's, yeah. It hasn't had a lot of fibre, this bear. And, and suddenly he hears this... He looks over. And there's a rabbit sitting next to him. Doing about a thousand poos a minute. Yeah. The bear says, uh, you, you're all right, Rabbit. And Rabbit says, yeah, fine. So what, are you, what are you doing? I'm doing some poos. Mm. I said, well, I'm trying to do a poo. And it's taking me ages. And Rabbit says, oh, I ate lots of glass here. <laughs> Out they come. And the bear says, uh, do you have a problem with, with uh, the poo sticking to your fur? And Rabbit says, no, no problem at all. The bear says, great. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's a very visual joke. For it's our a very visual joke. Which implies that the bear picks up the rabbit and wipes his own bottom with the rabbit. Because the rabbit doesn't have problem with poo sticking to his fur. Let's face it, if you were a bear, you would, wouldn't you? Probably. Yeah, probably. Probably. Can I just say, for the purposes of anyone listening, that was a um, like, a, like a story. It's not like real. Rabbits were not harmed by bears. The rabbit wasn't harmed because the poo didn't stick. And um, And he put it down carefully. He did, very carefully. Probably. Being a bear, he then ate it afterwards, unfortunately. I think we're we're at that time. It is that time. Okay. I I think even our American listeners are not going to enjoy this. uh. So, on that note, yeah, on that bull, on that, on that pooey note. <laughs> Go enjoy the rest of your evening. Go and enjoy the rest of your evening, or unless you're listening to us on on podcast and uh, doing something different at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, and don't forget, you can, you can, yeah, use the fast forward. You, you can listen to us on uh, on Spotify and uh, other podcast streaming services. 
or view us on live on uh, Facebook. So uh, with that note, if you've liked what we've given you, please click like, link below, share it with your friends if, they, if you think they might enjoy it as well. Georgie Hollis, thank you for standing into the breach and, and covering for me whilst I'm away on, uh, on visits abroad. Glad to take it. <laughs> may, may your dog go with you. May your dog go with you. Carlos Taxidi, Mike, enjoy your holiday. I shall. Thank you very much indeed, guys. Thank you, Georgie. Take care. (laughs) Cheers, guys. You take care. Right. Cheers, Mike. Oh, isn't she fantastic? She's just freaking amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We've spoken for nearly three hours on mushrooms. (laughs) Incredible. Absolutely incredible.